The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by TechTown Detroit, Detroit's entrepreneurship hub. TechTown Detroit is a business incubator and accelerator, helping tech startups and local businesses launch and grow. TechTown supports businesses with co-working, office, meeting, and event space. They also connect entrepreneurs to resources and learning and networking events in Detroit. TechTown Detroit, Detroit's entrepreneurship hub. Hey everybody, happy Wednesday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. And we've got a bit of a history lesson on the program for you today. My guest is going to be R.J. King. He's the editor of D-Business Magazine, but he has also written a new book called Detroit, Engine of America. It's a historical look at the city of Detroit from its founding in 1701 until about 1900 and the birth of the automotive industry. Some fascinating stuff in here and some characters that maybe you haven't heard about before. So stick around for the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Samaritas, the state's largest private foster care and adoption agency. However, Samaritas also provides a number of other services around the state. They are one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies in Michigan. They serve homeless families, persons with disabilities, abused and trafficked women. They also provide market rate and affordable housing for seniors and HUD housing for families and also have skilled nursing, memory care and rehab communities in Grand Rapids, Cadillac and Saginaw. Samaritas, we thank them for their support here at Deadline Detroit. Hey, Craig here. Thanks for checking out the show on this Wednesday. Really glad to have you with me. And uh, the city of Detroit obviously was founded well before the nation. Detroit came to be in 1701. The city, of course, has been around for about 318 years at this point, And that means that there is a lot of history. And most of our knowledge about the city of Detroit is limited to the auto industry. Maybe we know a little bit about Antoine de la Mothe Cadillac and his founding of the city. But then everything seems to skip to, of course, the birth of the automotive industry. But a whole lot of stuff happened in between those things here in the city of Detroit. And my guest, R.J. King, of course, is the editor of Detroit Business, D-Business Magazine, and now the author of a new book called Detroit, Engine of America. And, of course, we'll talk a little bit about the book in just a minute, but I also want to talk about where the industry is going right now. There's a lot of turmoil in the auto industry, and Ford Motor Company in particular uh, is going through a lot of interesting changes right now. The cover story in this month's D-Business takes a look at what is happening at Ford Motor Company and their transformation of the Corktown neighborhood as they look to get ready for an autonomous future in automobiles. My guest today, again, R.J. King, editor of D-Business and author of Detroit Engine of America. R.J., welcome to the Craig Folly Show. It's always a pleasure. It's been a while. Yeah, great to see you, Craig. It's nice to see you as well. And of course, so congratulations on the book. We'll talk about this in just a little bit. It really is a fascinating study of uh, of uh, Detroit's growth and, and how industrialization uh, has led to where we are today. Uh, but I also want to talk about the current issue of D-Business uh, because you have a, a really interesting story that Paul Eisenstein uh, did, interviewed uh, Mr. Henricks from Ford Motor Company's uh, executive team. I didn't know a lot about this guy. Uh, But the thing that that I came away with after reading this is just how fragile the auto industry is right now, given all of the turmoil and uh, and changes coming to the industry. Sure. At the same time that customers are turning to SUVs and pickup trucks and crossovers, uh, you're losing passenger cars at the same time the automakers have to invest in. You know, mobility services, uh, autonomous vehicles, and then, of course, electric vehicles. And those all cost, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars. So, 
you really got to play your cards right here. Well, and playing your cards right with a lot of factors that you can't predict. I mean, we always talk about how business likes predictability. They'd like to know what's coming next. But given uh, the turmoil that we have geopolitically uh, with tariffs and with, uh, you know, obviously some significant problems in other parts of the world, these are things that, that threaten the auto industry. It truly is a global industry, and everything seems to have a ripple effect. Sure. Uh, on the mobility front, uh, you know, you're really competing with these global mobility centers, uh, of course, Detroit and Silicon Valley, but also Stuttgart and uh, Tokyo and Seoul, South Korea, Shanghai, um, and of course, Israel. Uh, and I think, you know, you're seeing Silicon Valley starting to realize that it's very, very difficult to build things and build them well in a mass scale. And that's where the automakers are great. And I think, you know, they're actually probably a little bit further ahead now than they were before uh, because it's much, much harder to gear up and start production as opposed to, hey, let's convert this factory that we already have. Exactly. Uh, and I think I think the automotive companies, and Detroit in particular, have positioned themselves pretty well. And I say Detroit is in this region. Um, have positioned themselves pretty well to to be at the forefront of this. There was some concern a few years ago that the auto companies might be left out of this equation as the Teslas and the Apples of the world decide they want to get into this and Google. Those companies quickly realizing again that building a car that works is a lot more difficult than they realize, as you pointed out. Uh, talk about the importance of what Ford is trying to do over in Corktown in terms of making this uh, sort of a campus-wide thing. Uh, this is sort of following a model that Silicon Valley uses. Well, I think it's two big things. One is a talent play. Um, you know, those students graduating, coming out of college, they want an urban experience. Um, you know, and, and Ford is, is rapidly trying to redo their technology campus in Dearborn. But at the same time, you know, they've been doing a lot of surveys and, and they realize that, you know, uh, I never thought they'd be in downtown Dearborn, but they're starting to go into there. And now with Corktown, it's really a talent play on the same. Uh, the other play there is the mobility play. They've got access to urban streets that you know aren't very well used in that area. So they're already starting to test vehicles on those streets. And uh, they've got about 220 employees at the factory right at uh, Michigan Avenue and Rosa Parks. And... Um, yeah, it looks like the train station will be up and running in um, 2022, 2023. And, uh, you know, it'll have um, offices in there. Uh, they're looking at a, a hotel uh, toward the upper floors, uh, hospitality space. And on the main floor, all kinds of um, public uh, accommodations, restaurants and galleries and stores. And and then the, uh, the old post office, uh, uh, warehouse, the Roosevelt Warehouse, uh, that'll be more of a mobility play with labs and things. And then, uh, you know, they just tore down the brass factory uh, over on uh, Rosa Parks, right kind of behind the factory area. And uh, they'll do some more uh, tech space there as well. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a much bigger footprint than just the train station. Um, and again, from Ford's perspective, what are they thinking that they're going to gain as a result of this? Because this is a massive massive investment that they probably could have done out in the burbs somewhere if they really wanted to. They could have put it out in the burbs, but they'd never get the young kids out there. And and those are the kids that are being trained. Uh, you know, how many times if we turn to, you know, a young nephew or a young kid, hey, can you help me fix my smartphone here? And boom, it's done in two minutes and it would have taken you four days, right, to figure <laughs> this thing out. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> so it's that kind of talent and, um, 
skill set that they're 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 getting and and that's you know the latest and greatest coming out of college is is where you want to attract and they want to be in urban areas I want to remind folks, my guest right now is R.J. King. Of course, he's the editor at D Business, among other publica- uh, publications. But he is also the author of Detroit, Engine of America, a new book uh, that is put out by Momentum Publishing, uh, which is based in Troy. Um, congratulations on that, first of all. At what point did you decide that you wanted to become a historian? Well, I, I saw a void in the market. Uh, with the magazine, we have uh, a uh, the last page of the magazine is called Closing Bell, where we look back at an industry or a person that once was that contributed to uh, Detroit or Michigan's growth. And we kept going around to different sources, especially pre-1900. So I saw um, an opportunity to write a book that would tell the story of how Detroit went from a French fort on the riverfront in 1701, founded by Cadillac, up to 1900 when it became the birthplace of the automotive industry. So it's very much a city-building book, how this manufacturing powerhouse was built in the middle of the wilderness, and then all the interesting characters along the way. Well, and there are a lot of forgotten characters, you know, that that were around. I mean, because Detroit history, typically when it's told, starts with Cadillac, and then you jump to Henry Ford. Sure. Um, And so there's a whole gap in between there that I think really, really matters. I mean, obviously this was a a place where the lumber barons set up shop as well, among other things that were going on, fur trading first and everything else. There have always been industrialists here in some capacity, people that were entrepreneurs figuring out ways to move the region forward. Uh, Talk about somebody in the early days that you think needs to be looked at a little bit more carefully. Well, I think, uh, you know, Louis Cass, uh, you know, he was probably the most famous person in Detroit, you know, in the first part of the first half of the 1800s. And let's put this in perspective. Detroit is older than the country uh, by, you know, almost 80 years. Uh, so there's that, and it's the oldest city in the Midwest. So when people started to move um, westward from the East Coast, uh, really Detroit was this celebrated frontier town. And it was Lewis Cass um, that came here uh, in the early 1800s and really uh, solidified um, the government structure here. Uh, you had three judges. You had a city council that was pretty ineffective because the three judges were in control, including Judge Woodward. And uh, after the War of 1812, um, Cass was the one that really stepped forward and led this uh, frontier town uh, into becoming a city. Well, and if if that hadn't happened, right? And again, Detroit had some fits and starts along the way, but without Detroit being what it was at that time, Michigan statehood was not something that was guaranteed, was it? Uh, no, I think eventually it would have happened. Um, there was a lot of uh, territorial boundaries that shifted over time. I mean, first it was the Northwest Territory and then the Michigan Territory. And, you know, we had part of Ohio for a while. We had, uh, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota and um, even the Dakotas for a period. And then it all uh, came together in, in Michigan and, and especially the UP was a very valuable asset because that gave us a lot of access to natural resources that fueled this industrial revolution. Well, and the thing was, though, I mean, Detroit, because of where it's located, I mean, look, the Erie Canal wasn't built when Detroit was here. Um, You know, it wasn't exactly easy to go through the St. Lawrence Seaway. You didn't have the natural shipping lanes with except or within the region. So it seems that there was a self-sustainability here uh, that they needed to rely on for a long time uh, just to just to stay alive, let alone thrive. Uh, how were they able to do that at a time when they frankly were isolated? This was a frontier outpost. 
Well, uh, the first three main industries that sustained the population were fishing, farming, and then hunting, which gets into the beaver trade. Uh, you're correct. Uh, prior to the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825, to get here, you had a portage. And you get yourself to the uh, eastern edge of Lake Ontario, and then... Uh, you know, these guys would build canoes for four people and carry their supplies, and they would portage until they got to Lake Ontario and really slept under that canoe at night if needed, um, if it was raining or something. And you can only do that during the summer months, too. So you're right, it was very difficult to, to start a frontier town. But again, uh, that fishing, farming, and hunting got us going, sustained the population, had a lot of help from the Native Americans. And then uh, we got into shipbuilding. We had, obviously, plenty of lumber around and uh, you know, by the 1750s, we were really good at different building different types of ships, and then um, you know, more into that lumber industry, and then we got into stove building and uh, rail cars, uh, locomotives that were used all over the country, uh, which was a huge benefit for us, and then pharmaceutical drugs and seeds with Dexter Ferry, and then really more of the consumer products. Uh, you know, beer, agricultural equipment, uh, home furnishings, and, you know, you could produce it all here. So um, that that is still here. You can still build anything in Metro Detroit, no question. Well, interestingly enough, though, I mean, as we witness right now with the, with the UAW and the strike that's going on, obviously um, the automotive influence and, and, frankly, labor's influence have, have waned significantly in recent years here. The automotive industry still dominates, but it's not the be-all, end-all of Detroit as it was for a long time. And it didn't used to be that way. At what point did the automotive industry just completely take over our mindset in this community? Uh, that would have been right at the turn of 1900. Uh, you had people like um, David Dunbar Buick, um, Oldsmobile, Ford, um, Henry Leland, and uh, many others that um, really forged this industry. Uh, we were... Uh, it, it benefited Detroit so much that you had all these um, coach builders. So we were building, you know, wagons at first, but, you know, that came into very uh, fancy coaches, um, stage coaches and all those uh, types of things. And, uh, you know, everybody hugged the river. So uh, there weren't really a lot of roads uh, in the early days. Um, but as we developed more and more, we got those roads. And um, because... Uh, of that shipbuilding and the stove building, and then in the 1850s, we really got into marine engines. So not only did you have an industrial uh, powerhouse that was built, you, you had the skilled labor, and it was probably no wonder the industry, the auto industry started here because we had everything in place. And other places, obviously, were jealous of this. Um, you know, you had a lot of places that manufactured steel, things like that, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, that could have been more natural uh, places to do this. Even Toledo was thought to be a major competitor, potentially, for the population growth that we saw. Uh, were, were, they, were we just lucky in terms of the, the fact that the pieces were already in place, or was there a concerted effort to make sure that we were that place? Uh, we were the early adopters. I mean, Detroit's older than Pittsburgh, uh, for example. It's older than Cleveland and Chicago and uh, all those other Midwest cities. And so when you have, especially when the Erie Canal opened in 1825, you waves and waves of people coming here now fairly easily and waiting to um, buy their supplies, buy their stoves and those things uh, until they got here and either stay or keep moving west. 
I mean, that just propelled our economy uh, so much faster than anybody else. And, uh, you know, and when Michigan uh, became a state in 1837, Chicago became a city. Wow. So a lot of people don't realize Detroit is as old as it is. But, you know, one of the things you point out in this story as well is that, look, this is a place that, yes, there's a lot of success. When you look at where Detroit is compared to where a lot of other cities that were thought to be the new up-and-coming place. I remember the people who led Duluth thought it was going to be bigger than Chicago at some point because of mining and stuff up there. When you look at what Detroit has accomplished despite the setbacks and, and of course, the fluctuating economy that we seem to enjoy here, Mm -hmm. uh, do you see this as a triumph? Because a lot of people are saying, oh, write Detroit off or, or you know, Detroit's, uh, you know, never going to be what it is. And its reputation is what it is. But do you see this as a success? I, I do. Um, there's a lot of wealth here uh, that people don't realize. And there's incredible talent. Uh, we have the largest concentration of engineers in the world. Um, now we have uh, a great technology industry here. And I think we're well set up for the future. Um, the one thing that, that I think is actually getting better now, finally, is uh, education, especially in Detroit. If you look at what Dr. Vitti's been doing, uh, all the grade scores were up um, for the schools last year, and uh, they're starting to get the corporate interest into the career and tech schools uh, in the city. And, uh, you know, that's going to be tremendous because there's going to, you know, with the low unemployment rate, and the fight for talent, if you can grow your own talent, so to speak, uh, and, and it's all sitting there right in Detroit in our suburbs, uh, this next generation, uh, these future leaders, uh, if we can get our educational um, landscape really, really working well, that's really going to bode well for the future. R.J. King, my guest. Again, he is the author of Detroit, Engine of America, as well as the editor at D-Business and its uh, sister publications. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the format of this book. I like the way that it's laid out. It is very much a sort of a timeline, but um, talk about the way that you designed it. It looks more like a journal uh, than it does necessarily a typical hardcover book you'd buy at a store. It's got the ribbon in there so you can save your page. I- I'm assuming that was done on purpose. Yeah, you're, you're right on the mark there. Uh, I I didn't want a hard bar, hardbound book that had a slip cover. Um, if you just have a little tear on it, it's ruined. I wanted something durable. I wanted a journal to evoke uh, an explorer's guide to Detroit because the book covers 1701 to 1900. And um, it has the rounded edges. Uh, it's incredibly durable. And uh, yeah, the people love the red page mark ribbon. Uh, it's been a big hit. Well, congratulations on getting this done. I, I know it's not an easy endeavor. Um, you've been a writer for a long time, obviously, but putting together a book is something different entirely. Uh, talk a bit about that experience and how you had to change your mindset and, frankly, maybe your style even uh, to make it work. Because you know, when you're used to writing in thousand word increments, all of a sudden putting out a hundred plus page book is a little bit more difficult. I'm guessing. Yeah, if you're looking to write a book, I, these these are the suggestions and these are the things that have worked for me. I, I block off three or four hours on a Saturday, three or four hours on a Sunday, and um, really have your your chapters set up first because that becomes your outline. And in this book, I did a lot of research um, with Silas Farmer and Clarence Burton and, and many others. And because I had my book set up chronologically, or had my chapters set up chronologically. Um, if I read something interesting that was in 1849, I just put that in that chapter. And then, uh, 
throughout that and then interviews uh, with descendants of some of the, the city's um, early founders, uh, put that all together. It took about a year to write and then about six months to design and produce it. But being very organized at the beginning, and yeah, a chapter or two might change along the way as you get into the research, um, no matter what kind of book you're doing, but you really need to, number one, get those chapters set up first, and number two, have the discipline to just, so you're not watching football anymore, you're not watching baseball, watch the highlights. Yeah, that's my problem right there. <laughs> well, but at the same time, I mean, there's got to be a lot of stuff that's left on the cutting room floor. I mean, fascinating people, fascinating stories that you're like, well, okay, this may be tangential to what we're talking about, what was going on here, but uh, how do you make those decisions? Well, with this book, um, I, I kept getting um, pulled into different directions. I'm like, oh, wow, this happened in Ann Arbor and the University of Michigan uh, starting there in the 1847 timeframe. Uh, they had started in Detroit in 1817. Oh, I wanted to start writing about Ann Arbor, but then I had to, you know, I, I mentioned a bit about that because the University of Michigan started in Detroit, but I stopped, I had to pull myself back and okay, I, I could write about the founding of Ann Arbor, but this is a book about Detroit. I could do the same thing about Lansing or Saginaw Bay City and Traverse City. And, you know, they're all mentioned, but um, it really was, uh, you have to be very, very disciplined and keep on that message that this is a book about Detroit and not Michigan or the other cities. Well, last question for you, RJ. I mean, who's your favorite character in this book? I mean, these are all real people, obviously. You mentioned Lewis Cass, obviously, at the beginning. Uh, I know a lot of Hazen Pingree fans in this community uh, who are like the best mayor of all time. But who was somebody that um, that you came out of this thinking, wow, that would have been a cool person to know? Uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Really? He came here in 1849, uh, was um, commissioned to Fort Wayne, uh, the... Um, uh, the uh, you know the um, military quarters weren't ready for him, so he and his wife and their little girl lived um, just outside the fort at um, Livernois and uh, Fort Street there, and uh, he was told early on not to drink, and he and he followed that advice, and he and his wife were just celebrated here, uh, the toast of the town. They had a tremendous time, and he stayed for a couple years on and off, and then. Um, he got reassigned to uh, Maine, and um, I'm sure that was a difficult journey. And I think he was starting to drink there, probably getting bored. And then they um, uh, moved him to Portland, Oregon. And imagine that trip in those days. And then uh, he got called out for drinking and uh, was told either you can uh, resign your commission or you know go before a court-martial. So he resigned his commission uh, in the mid-1850s. And then when the Civil War broke out in 1861, he convinced the governor of Illinois to give him uh, uh, control of a brigade, and he just fought. He didn't care about politics. Some of the other generals under Lincoln uh, were kind of biding their time to run against him in the 1864 election. Um, Grant would have none of it. He just kept fighting and fighting, and Lincoln took a shine to him, and obviously he became a general of the U.S. Army, won the Civil War, and this is the time I really wanted to come back to. So he came back to Detroit in 1865 for five days, and it was probably the biggest celebration Detroit had ever seen, um, probably for that whole decade. Wow. Well, or I, for that whole century, I see, should say. <laughs> this is stuff that's in this book. Yes. 
and we appreciate it very much. R.J. King, we appreciate you being with us today. Uh, congratulations again. The book is called Detroit, Engine of America. People can find it, I assume, just about anywhere you can find books. Yeah, any bo- where you can find books or just uh, go to DetroitEngineOfAmerica.com. Perfect. Well, we appreciate it very much, and congratulations on getting this done. Thank you so much, Craig. R.J. King is the author of Detroit, Engine of America, joining us here on the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. We appreciate you taking a listen today. And don't forget, if you'd like to find out what is going on here or you've got ideas for what I should be doing, shoot me an email, thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. It's easy to reach me. Don't forget you can find me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, Snapchat, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. You can find me, send me messages there, and I will usually see them. Although I will say this, yes, I get messages on Messenger, but it drives me nuts. I really prefer email to that. Maybe that makes me old. Either way, we'll be back tomorrow with another show. Got some cool stuff coming up there. Uh, Hoping, hoping to have an interview with the New York Times television critic. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, He's got a new book out. He's a Detroit native as well. So we'll talk a bit about all that good stuff on tomorrow's show. Then on Friday, it is the week that was on Deadline Detroit. Looking forward to that. All right, we'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. 